Andy, my dude, have you heard of the magical website builder known as Squarespace? Ugh, not another Squarespace ad. I feel like every podcast is sponsored by them. <laughs> hey, 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 don't knock it till you try it. Yes, okay, it is overhyped. But actually, it lives up to the hype. Squarespace is like a website fairy godmother. With a click of a button, your site transforms into a beautiful masterpiece. A website fairy godmother? That sounds interesting. What makes it so magical? Well, for starters, those slick templates make anyone look like a professional web designer. Pick one, customize the colors and fonts to match your brand, and voila. Plus, the drag-and-drop fluid engine is so easy, your grandma could build a site on Squarespace. Well, she did knit me a lovely scarf last Christmas. Maybe website design is next. Exactly. And when you're ready to sell your Nana's handmade scarves online, Squarespace has built-in e-commerce. Add a store with one click. Get flexible payment options. Then watch those sales roll in. And when she wants to teach others her steezy scarf skills, Squarespace's new courses feature is just the ticket. Nana can set up her curriculum and enrollments and payments in a snap and become the next e-knitting influencer. Wow, you really sold me with the grandma angle. Sign me up for that free try. Just go to thenextreel.com slash Squarespace and transform your site into a beautiful Squarespace masterpiece. Well, thanks, Pete. Even though it's overhyped, Squarespace actually sounds perfect for Nana's site's needs. Appreciate the warning on the ads, though. I'll brace myself next time I listen to a podcast. Anytime. Let me know if you need any help getting that site up and running. Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to support our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Welcome to Trailer Rewind. We go back and look at films that Pete and Andy talked about in their trailer picks from the regular show and go watch those films and spoil them. Today, we're going to talk about The Nice Guys, and we've got a very, very special guest. It's Andy! Hey! 
Pete locked him in here, so when I opened up the studio to record, he was just sitting here waiting to talk about a movie. All alone. So tonight we're talking about Shane Black's newest film. Andy, this was your pick from December 11th, 2015. Not too long ago. Yeah, not too long ago. And this is uh, actually our third trailer rewind. So this is sort of the Andy tri-pick-fecta. We've done three films that you've picked. So I guess Pete's maybe just picking bad trailers. I'm not, I'm not sure. I think he is. I think he is. <laughs> it's my husband. He's gone missing. Missing? I'm terribly worried. It's just Fred's never been gone this long before. How long has he been missing? Since the funeral. Well, I can start right away. You're a private investigator? My profession is very complicated, okay? It's nuanced. That is a lot. That's a lot of blood. I went back and listened, and you said you were super excited to see this because of a name that was attached to it, and that name is Shane Black. You said he did Iron Man 3, which you can't fault him for because it's a franchise. But you said that he's a great writer that started with Lethal Weapon and has written a lot of great action stuff. And that you were looking forward to the over-the-top action and comedy and great moments between Russell and Ryan. Did it live up to those expectations, your anticipation from watching the trailer? Yeah, I think it did for the most part. It's a um, it's an interesting film. I really did enjoy it quite a bit. I think Shane Black has always had a really strong handle on his screenplays. And since he's started uh, directing with Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, I think he's really shown that he kind of really knows how to uh, shape a film. And I think he does a good job with that, whether it's, you know, one for him, like Kiss Kiss Bang Bang or this or or one for them, like Iron Man 3 or the upcoming Predator. Um, I, I really enjoy watching what he does. I mean, it's, it's interesting coming into this because I, I saw that I, I did this pick before we did our our Shane Black series. And so I hadn't rewatched a lot of his stuff. And I think I really enjoy his scripts more than some of the films that we ended up watching. Like, uh, I didn't end up liking Lethal Weapon as much as I remember. I didn't end up liking um, The Last uh, Boy Scout really much at all. But the other ones I think were really great. And this one, I think it's it's maybe not quite up there with Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, but I still thought it was a very strong film. Yeah, this was, it's been a while since I've seen Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. I actually just picked up a used uh, used copy and probably going to be watching it later this week because it's one that I remember just how st- strong of a voice that film had. There was something, that unique voice that is in the scripts when, when he's writing to bring that over into the film uh, as, as the director. It was something that really stood out with Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. So I was interested to see how that might carry over and this one and to take it and set it in a different era to go back into the 70s. So sort of a, a period piece, almost like a, you know, that noir detective story, but still have that what I usually expect from his films, which is that blend of of dark comedy and a lot of unexpected, unique moments in the film. Uh, this one opens with, you know, a car crashing through a house and the nude body of a porn star being flung out the the window of the car and being discovered by like a 12 or 13 year old boy that just had happened to be looking at her pictures in his, his dad's adult magazine, sort of a unique, uh, somewhat humorous and, and tragic way to start a film. But it just sets that, that tone I felt for what we were going to be getting. It absolutely has both the, the comedy and mystery, uh, wrapped into, and just the darkness. I mean, all of that I think is right there in uh in the opening of this and it really fits with uh within shane black's world interestingly i mean he actually co-wrote this with anthony bagarazzi who uh, i guess they actually had written this script 
2003, I think, 2001, somewhere way back then. Um, it was set in the present day, and they went back and decided uh, nobody was interested, and for some reason they went back and rewrote it to be in the 70s. And I, I think it ended up fitting a lot better. I think they were able to tie in a lot of really interesting elements from the 70s in LA, like all the smog. And and uh, it really ended up kind of having a Chinatown type of plot for me where it's got a crime that happens, but then there's also like political political elements tied into it and everything. Plus you have these hilarious, uh, unlike Chinatown, you have these hilariously uh, comedic uh, pairing of private eyes trying to solve everything. And I don't know. I I think that it works uh, really well, and I I think the casting of these two guys, Russell Crowe and Ryan Gosling, I think was uh, I I thought they were a fantastic pair. Yeah, I think the the setting uh, really was uh, like almost another character in the film. One of the things that JJ and I often talk about when we're doing these trailer rewinds is that we've come across sort of a a phrase we like to use talking about the, the elements that add flavor to a film. They're just those little things that just add a little bit of richness to the story and texture and for me it was just early on when uh russell crowe's character jackson healy is going back to his apartment and he lives like right above a comedy club the comedy store i think it is and there's several shots where you'll see the names of the comedians that are performing and they're like famous names now like tim allen is on there and elaine boozler and like uh, uh uh you know so i kept seeing that i was like oh that's it's funny to think about those you know, big names now being these struggling, you know, comics, but that that's where they were in the 70s. And then, as you said, the smog, we've got the uh, the protest group that's out there protesting the smog for the for the birds. And it all just added that little bit of extra something. There's there's some moments with uh, a story about Richard Nixon, again, that just sort of added a little comic element to it that I, I don't know that you'd be able to leverage those things as well in a film set in the, you know, current day because sometimes those things just sort of feel dated if if you get a few years past them when we're more than like a decade out we have i I think a different perspective on those things that are going to endure versus those things that seem humorous in 2016 and in four years will just seem like a groaner of like oh yeah that was a thing back then yeah there's something um really refreshing i think about uh kind of putting it into a period. And, and you know, I think that they actually said in an interview that it made a lot more sense for them because you could take out all of the elements of modern technology, which in, in detective stories that take place present day, it kind of can take a lot of the that element that made them more interesting and intriguing back in the day when you couldn't get in touch with somebody right away, when you actually had to like run down to a, a payphone or pull over and find a payphone somewhere or you know run over to their house to actually track them down as opposed to the way that everyone stays in touch nowadays. And I, I think that there is something to that and the way that these people track each other down here. And just also, I think there was an element of kind of that 70s trust with his daughter. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Just, yes. like, <laughs> just go over to your friend's house. You know, and, but it, you know, it, I don't know. It's just so casual. It's like, yeah. oh, my God, I would never, never or, be able to handle that. Now. Or the fact that it's like 10, 11 o'clock at night and she's just wandering around reading a book in like the vacant lot down the street, you know, in in a a somewhat decent neighborhood, I think. But still, you're you're not going to let, you know, your 12, 13 year old daughter just, you know, out roaming the neighborhood late at night. In the 70s, it was a different era. But we see the the relationship that that Holland, you know, played by Ryan Gosling has with his daughter. Uh, You know, she's like his chauffeur. 
she's she's the one that's always driving him around. I think you know there's there's more to that. He's you know clearly has some problems drinking, so she's taken on this responsibility almost as the adult there to you know she's the one that drives him around. She's the one that she's almost become you know sort of a, a fill in for you know his wife that's gone. She's the one that's got to you know hold him accountable. She he asks her at one point, "Am I?" What is it? She asks if he's a if he's a good guy or a bad guy or something. No, she asks. He asks his daughter if if he's a bad guy, and she's like, "Yeah, you are." Right. She's she's really frank and honest with him, uh, and it's it was a refreshing relationship, uh, and it was something that 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 role um, of his daughter Holly March. I thought, okay, it's just this is just one little character that's you know we've got a lot of different characters in here and they're all very memorable. But her role in the story was much more than I anticipated. Uh, she almost became a third member of the of the team for for several segments in the film. Well, and in certain elements, she was essential to be there because of uh, like when they went to the big party. I think they only really yeah. ended up finding Amelia because of her age and because uh, she, I mean, granted, she gets herself in trouble, but she's the one who ends up finding Amelia and kind of putting two and two together to track her down. I think that there's something really interesting about having her kind of getting herself in into uh, trouble, you know, and be kind of that person who wanted to help her dad and was always kind of sneaking into the car or taking a taxi, following him or whatever it was to, to kind of help out in her own way. And that was fantastic. And, and, you know, that's one of the tropes that Shane Black has had in many of his films is having a kid involved. I mean, we've seen that in, I think most of the ones that we've talked about and certainly all the other ones. Um, and I think that this is probably the best example of a, uh, a parent-child uh, relationship that I've seen in any of the films that he's written. She has a relationship with her father, and then when Jackson Healy, played by Russell Crowe, shows up, you can tell she's a little suspicious of this guy who, you know, has has just gone in, into her house and broken her dad's arm and is leaving and uh, <laughs> is playing it off like, oh yeah, we just had a, a business meeting. You can tell she's a little suspicious of him, but the relationship that they develop through the course of the movie to the to by the time we're at the end of the film, and he's, you know, basically got this hitman that that's been this major thorn in their side for the last part of the film in his hands and is ready to kill him. And she's there and basically says, no, don't you, you can't, you're, you're not that type of a person. You, you're not going to do this. I thought the, the ability that she has to have that connection with him, to have that sort of power to ask him to do that was something I really didn't expect. And it added an extra layer of depth to these characters that you typically don't see in an, in an action film where it's just going to devolve into the big shootout and there's guns and there's blood and guts flying everywhere. And in the midst of all that, to have this moment between these two characters was, was really refreshing. Yeah, it was a really touching moment and clearly one that uh, evolved his character arc as we see him deal with that exact same situation earlier in the story. And then as she, as he has her go, you know, look for a vehicle, he does end up kind of killing the guy. Um, and and so seeing that transition in his life, I thought was a, a, just a great moment. And and seeing how it evolved the relationship with, with him and Holly. But then also, I think just how it kind of, you know, interestingly enough, his last name, Healy, you know, how it kind of, in a way, kind of helps heal him and, and kind of get him back on track so that he's not just this muscle guy who's going to kind of go and and, um, you know, beat somebody up for somebody. But he actually joins the team. And now he is an official PI working with 
with Holland, and you know, we've got the 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 suave uh, caricature on their ad. So I mean, it's it's great. Well, we, we've sort of gotten to the end of the race. Let's let's sort of backtrack a little bit and look at where each of these guys starts at the beginning of the film because Jackson Healy does have an interesting arc. So let's sort of look at Russell Crowe as as Jackson Healy. When we meet him, you know, he is just this like. What is he? He's like the muscle. People hire him to like break legs and threaten people. Um, and it appears that he's got a an ad in like some magazine or something, which is how uh, I believe Amelia finds him. Right. Uh, but he's just sort of this, he's muscle for hire. Yeah. If you need somebody to stop following you or, or just anything like that, that sort of thing, you know, he'll go take care of it. And it seems like in a weird way, it's kind of a... a a spin on his character from LA Confidential. You know, he, yeah. he he's the one who's going to take care of people who are, are mistreating women, you know, and so he goes and roughs them up. And it's clear that he's been sort of living in that world for, I mean, he knows the rules of that because there's a scene where um, he comes back to his apartment and there are two men waiting for him. And he knows how this is going to go down. They're going to rough him up. They're going to want to get some information from him. But then one of the characters who's then known as uh, Blueface, he sort of strays from that and and starts pulling his uh, Jackson's fish out of the fish tank. And at that point, he sort of Jackson sort of steps and says, well, hold on a second. This is not the way this is supposed to work. When you came here, you had something you were going to do and you were going to do this and you were going to, you know, get this information from me. But now you've strayed from that. And that changed the dynamic of that situation, but it gave some insight into into Healy as far as yes it's this it's this rough sort of dark underside of things but there are still rules of how we interact with each other and everybody understands those and Blueface is this sort of sort of I don't know hyped up strung out psycho character who just isn't going to listen to those rules but for me it was it was it was there was it was a humorous moment which is how Blueface Blueface gets his name but it was also that bit of insight into how Healy works sort of in his role. Well, and you see that a few times. And I, I think another great example is how um, when he finds out how March kind of makes money and, you know, he it's the, you know, the three days, he gets a couple days payment from somebody, goes back the third day and sounds like, you know, he acts like he's onto something to get paid for a few more days just to pull more money out of these poor people. Right. And but he doesn't actually do really any work on those initial days. It's just kind of this scam that he's come up with. And Jack on the other hand is much more uh, kind of an upstanding sort of guy and even though he's roughing people up for for money, he's the one who kind of sets March straight and says, "No, no, no. You know, they paid us to do this. I'm going to go do the work that they paid uh, that right. they paid me for." And I thought that was great. It said that, you know, he's uh, a moralistic character working in this world, and you know he is in a, in a way he's there to kind of set Holland back on track. And I, you know, I, I liked that element of their relationship because it was interesting to see Holland as this guy who really, I mean, he's kind of scamming old ladies. You know, he takes oh, yeah. the money from this lady who's looking for her <laughs> husband, whose ashes are on the the, the hearth. <laughs> yes, terrible. <laughs> Because he asked her, what was the last time you've seen him? And she's like, well, not since the funeral. <laughs> so he's like, okay, all right, write the check. Yep. I'll see what I can do. Yeah, he's he's an interesting, uh, Holland is an interesting character because there's there's the tragedy in in his story, which 
to me was a little bit unexpected because there's uh when they first get to the big party and uh and uh Jackson says, Oh, uh, I can tell Mary Jane's attending this party and, and Holland's like, What well, he's like, you know, Mary Jane, marijuana and and Holland says, Oh, I I I can't smell. I have no sense of smell. And I thought that's sort of just an interesting little character attribute but then it comes back there's a payoff to that and that's one of the things that i saw throughout this film is these little moments that then have these payoffs and we've learned that you know years before there was something there was an issue with the furnace and there was a gas leak and he didn't he couldn't smell it he kept putting off dealing with repairs which ultimately led to the loss of their home and i believe it's implied sort of his his wife yeah i think i think she was in the home and died in the home and, and died so there's you know, there's his alcoholism, there's his trying to get his life back on track. But there is this, you know, trauma in the past that he's dealing with. So it is nice to see how Jackson's able to sort of pull him back on track. But I think what's nice is the interplay between the two. Holland becomes very much sort of the, I guess, the comic relief in the duo. There are just so many great moments with him, just even at the party. Oh, yeah. Of... <laughs> you get a couple of drinks in him. He's since swimming with the mermaids, uh, <laughs> falling falling over walls, rolling down hills, uh, things of that nature. So it was just this roller coaster with him of those comic elements or his fixation with the Nazis. I think one of the th- lines that got the biggest laugh was um, he he was you know talking with someone. They said they were just following orders, and he says, "Well, you know who else was just following orders." Hitler. <laughs> and several times it's he's clearly got this fixation with the Nazis because he can't even keep the difference between Munich and a eunuch straight in his head. Well, then he, he starts uh, at the end after they've solved it and they see the uh, the criminal yeah. coming in. You know, he starts mumbling in German. <laughs> German yeah. So just those, you know, th- that interplay between the two. Because uh, Jackson is sort of that the straight man and, and Holland is sort of the comic relief. Uh, just the... The relationship between the two, I was, you know, sort of interested enough to get through that. But then we also have enough of a story to keep us interested. And as we're go- working our way through the story, there's just a rich world of characters and, and memorable characters that were that we meet sort of through their, uh, I guess, their journey. Because I've already talked about Blueface, and then we've got the other hitman that's with Blueface, uh, the older guy played by Keith David, who we run into several times, who seemed like a more experienced hitman that sort of knew the rules because he he gets in a brawl with with uh, Jackson and Jackson basically says, you know, you're going to get out of town. He said, oh, yeah, you're right. I'm going to Michigan. I'm, I'm out of here. I'm done. Uh, but then we also get some some, you know. We get, uh, let's see, Chet, who's a, a, a student, I think, who's uh, we meet. The projectionist. At, at the, yes, he's the he's the projectionist. And I think we met him at the the protest. Right. Yep. The, yeah, so we've got a, a group. The woman, the girl they're looking for, Amelia, has got a protest group that's protesting smog. And so they're all at a protest playing dead. And so, of course, when uh, Jackson and Holland want to interrogate them, they're unable to because the protests say, we can't talk to you, we're dead. Ultimately, Chet... Is willing to help them out. Who is the projectionist and becomes a much uh, more important character than I thought he was going to be. I thought he was just part of a little one-off at the end, but we do see Chet return later in the film. Yeah, which was great. I mean, they really yeah. did tie characters back in, and that's something that I think Shane Black 
is really effective at is finding ways to to have these little setups and payoffs. I mean, he certainly has the big setups and payoffs, but then he also finds all the little ones that just kind of pepper through that really just help a script and that that help the audience as they move through the story. They put those pieces together and they go, "Oh, that was the payoff for that." And it just it it just keeps setting all those callbacks into their heads that it just I don't know, makes for a really exciting watch, I think. Yeah, it, it was able to, because there's with a detective story like this with with clues be coming in and be leading to dead ends. Uh, you know, there's a, there can be a lot to keep track of, and it's how can you keep it moving along? How do you keep sort of pulling the rug out from under our main characters so there's continuing mystery without becoming too confusing? Yeah, and I think this was able to weave everything together to start us off with a missing, uh, you know, a, a dead porn star, a missing girl that is now tied into that and then connecting into the whole Detroit auto industry and the smog even and protests, how all of those connect together and it was really ni- nicely packaged together so that I, I never felt lost or confused as to where they were going or why they were going there. Even if it's again, another humorous moment to, to go to a meeting up at the, t- the top of a hotel building get out of the elevator, uh, bump into a guy who's had his throat slit, see another guy go flying out the window, and then decide, um, yeah, we're just going back downstairs. We're not dealing with this. <laughs> right. That's when they. That's when uh, John Boy comes to town, played by Matt Bomer. And uh, and that's, that's our introduction to him. We never see him, but we know that, oh, he was going to go to this meeting, and all we see is just uh, death and chaos everywhere. And that's what, like, yeah, yeah we'll just leave. <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah, no, and and John Boy. When we do actually get to meet him face to face, we really realize how brutal of a character he is because he's willing to basically pick up and throw a thirteen-year-old girl through like a plate glass window. Yeah, right. You know, I thought that, and there's there's a lot of you know brutal things like that. Again, you know, balanced by the comedy, but he's not just a hitman. I mean, it's like cold, heartless. I'm on a mission. I'm just going to do this. He's going to do whatever it takes to uh, to get the job done, and I mean he's just a really uh, a brutal killer, and really effective. And it really threw me that Amelia ended up dying because they were doing such kind of a kind of a good job of saving her. I mean, it was one of those things where I felt like it was going to be a. Um, just a a continuation of the comedy of errors of we get her, she sneaks away, we get her, she sneaks away, that sort of thing. And and it really kind of surprised me that uh, she did end up uh, getting hit uh, by by John Boy. Yeah, it it was really shocking. But then I sort of, you know, afterwards playing through the movie, you know, that later that evening, the next day, I realized she, as a character, sort of structurally, story-wise, she'd now at that point already shared all her information with Holland and Jackson. They really had nothing more to learn from her because she just basically laid out the whole sort of conspiracy of what was going on. That's the information they were looking for. They needed to get her, you know, they had, you know, her mother that they, you know, had had paid them, but really in terms of the larger sort of mystery that's, that everything's all bundled up in, she spilled that information to them. And so sort of as a, character as far as utility to the story there was no more use for her no and absolutely i mean you're right when you when you look at it after you've seen it it's like yeah there's no more use for that character she's she's kind of filled all of the role that she needed to fill still for a detective film where they're hired to actually save this girl right you think they will of course then when you realize that the mother is one of the bad guys uh, played by kim basinger 
as uh, Judith Cutner. The, what was she? The DA? No, she wasn't the DA. She Department was the, of Justice. Department of Justice. Justice that's right, yeah, that's right. Um, and you realize that she's actually bad. Uh, it, it didn't matter that she was really trying to find her daughter because really she was just trying to find her daughter so that she could get her killed. It was all part of this whole right. plot that she had. It, it was shocking to see Amelia killed, but sort of in light of all the innocent bystanders that <laughs> yeah. get taken out in the course of this movie. I mean, I think the first one was there's somebody there's, I think Holland and Jackson are wrestling or there's a, there's a gun that goes off and it, the bullet goes out the window to the apartment across the way or the home next door. I think that's when uh, uh, the older guy and Blueface are, is that when oh, they're yeah. fighting with, uh, with uh, Jack in his office and right, one of them yeah. takes a shot at him and he moves and yeah, it goes, yeah, it goes across. Kills the, across the street, just kill somebody. And there's a, uh, some, but at the party, there's a guy on stilts that just gets shot and goes right. down. I mean, there's, you don't want to be anywhere around these guys because you're you're going to take a bullet. Well, that's something that uh, Shane and uh, Anthony said is, you know, they wanted to kind of show when you, know, you never see that, where these bullets go when uh, a stray bullet misses somebody. Right. You know what happens to those bullets? Do they, you know, do they just hit a tree or whatever? And they're like, no, let's 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 answer those questions in this film. Like same thing when you throw a body over a fence to get rid of it. What happens to it? Lands in a dinner party, exactly. <laughs> so as far as you know, Amelia is a character. You know, she does get taken out. That was the, one of the characters I think I struggled with the most as far as we didn't have a lot of her, and I guess maybe it's the fact that she the character isn't necessarily a likable person. She's sort of this snotty rich kid who I think at first it's, we don't even believe the story she's telling at first. It just seems like she's mad at her mom and it's this whole mother daughter dispute. And for me, there was just something about that character that just, I I don't know if it was the, um, the, the, the spiteful teenager that she's playing, or or what, but that was the one character I just didn't quite know. I didn't know how I felt about her by the end of the film. Yeah, I can I can see that. I think that there's a little bit of a challenge there because we didn't really have a lot of time with Amelia before either. There's the one scene where we see her talking to Jack, and that's it. I mean, that's all we have of her other than kind of fleeing. I think that there could have been a little more of her there. I also felt, you know, the the element of Judith kind of coming in at the end as one of the uh, or the bad guy. It it kind of didn't work for me. I mean, it, yeah. it worked in context of the yeah. story and the plot, but I also felt like they were kind of setting it up where. Um, weirdly, it felt like they were setting it all up where it was just her assistant and she didn't know what was going on. I mean, that's right. kind of how I felt. It's like, oh, yeah. it's totally going to be Tally. But it doesn't, like, she does end up tied into it. And so it kind of threw me when at the end, it's like, oh, she's in on it. And they just kind of say that. It, that was the whole thing at the end. It's like, oh, there she is. She's in on it. Right. They have that final conversation. And I don't know if that's because Kim uh, Basinger's schedule just didn't work that well or if that's just how it was written. But it was. I thought that was pretty thin for me. Yeah. Yeah, I was expecting a, a much more of her. I knew she got introduced late in, but I definitely thought there would be more connection. But I guess perhaps at the Department of Justice level, that her character's at, you're not in, you're not that sort of get your hands necessarily dirty dealing with everybody else. Um, Cause we saw that, you know, there were a lot, she may have been pulling strings from afar is sort of how I, I took that. And so I, I thought, okay, I can, 
I can accept that, but I, I, I was expecting more sort of confrontation directly with her, which we don't really get. We get, I think she's what in, in two scenes, two, two scenes, right? When she hires them, and then at the at the end, at the at the hearing, or whatever. That's that's about it. We get with her. Yeah, that's all. And yeah. it seems like her schedule is just really thin. There just yeah. wasn't a lot of time. I mean, I you know, I always enjoy watching Kim Basinger on screen yeah. and and she and Russell Crowe obviously um had time together in LA Confidential. Right. Um yes. so it was great seeing them on screen together again, but yeah, I just I I felt like um, that element where it's just like, you know, we're wrapping it up. And at first I didn't even know because she's walking in and I was just like, oh, she's going to walk in and, you know, I'm sorry you weren't able to save my daughter. Thank right. you sort of thing. Yeah. But it's like, no, went the other way. She's the bad guy. It's like, no, never set that up really. So as far as the the female characters in the film, sort of getting back to Shane Black and what you sort of have seen in his other films, how would you rate sort of the female characters in this one compared to what you've seen in some of the other films you've watched recently. You know, Shane Black has said he ends up spending so much time focusing on his two leads um, that, uh, you know, the buddy pair that he ends up having, that he he doesn't spend as much time with the rest of them. I think Holly, um, played by, is it Anjuri? Anjuri Rice? I I think so. I think that's how you pronounce it. Yeah. Yeah. You're the Australian. I read she's from Australia, so... (laughs) I see. I see. Uh, I thought she was a fantastic female character. Again, it's a child, and and you know they tend to have, or he tends to have children in the scripts. Um, the rest of the women, I felt, were um, uh, kind of. The, I don't know. I, I don't feel like the parts were very strong for them. I did like Tally, and I liked the relationship uh, that uh, that Holland had with Tally. I thought that was. Um, kind of cute. It was really yes. funny. Um, but um, I felt like women were either kind of porn stars or 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 you know party girls. It, it just didn't seem like there was a, a lot of um, uh, great characters for women here. I guess. But that seems to be something that also hits quite a bit with Shane Black. I mean, it's yeah. big action sorts of movies. And I think True. that was what was so refreshing with The Long Kiss Goodnight is having Gina Davis as one of your leads. I think that really kind of changed things up a little bit. So for a, f- a film set in the 70s uh, and trying to sort of take us back in time, let's talk about the, the music that uh, sort of, carries us through and that in terms of you know the score the soundtrack how did you feel that felt you're the usually the resident expert when it comes to talking about you know the score and music for a film so i wanted to get your your perspective well i i will say um i honestly can't remember much of the score and i feel bad but i was just so taken by all the uh the 70s tunes playing all through the film i mean there were so many great uh, 70s tunes starting off with um uh gosh what was it papa was a rolling stone is, yeah. is the first thing that we hear as the movie gets started and it just they just go on all through i mean they're just fantastic tunes all the way so i mean i had a great time listening to all the music um throughout the film and i thought it worked really well they found a great uh, mix of ones that you recognize with some that you may not recognize as well to really kind of put it together. And I love the little bit of, uh, I think it was Earth, Wind, and Fire playing at the... Oh, at the club? <laughs> or at the party? At the, yeah. at the party. Yes. Right, singing September, which was uh, fantastic. <laughs> so I, I loved the music. It felt so uh, perfect for the period um, for LA. I just thought it was great. And I'm sure I, I'm sure the music, the score by, what was it, David Buckley? Yeah. I'm sure I recognize um, that it's in there. I just... For some reason, I was so taken by just the actual 
uh, songs that I just, I honestly don't remember a piece of it. And I believe we did have, what, one Christmas song? Isn't that a Shane Black thing? We usually have a, we're set around Christmas? Yeah, we usually, uh, there's some Christmas in there, and um, I'm trying to remember what the Christmas song was. It's at the, uh, it's at the very end. Sort of as the the wrap up when Jackson and Hollander are in the bar. I can't uh-huh. remember exactly what Christmas song it was, but I do know it was a Christmas song because I sort of it's one of the things I keep my eyes peeled for is like how right. is the, how are we going to connect this to Christmas? And I was like, oh okay, there it is. There's some Christmas music playing at the end. There we go. Thank yep. you, Mr. Black. Yes. And I think that was it. Yes. Because, okay. <laughs> yeah, nothing else was Christmas throughout the film. No. I, I And I thought with L.A., okay, you can shoot whatever in L.A. and you can say it's Christmas. Nobody's going to know the difference. And I will say, talking about shooting the film, since they shot part of this in Georgia and part of it uh, in L.A., um, you know, I think it kind of is akin to them when they were filming Take Me Home Tonight and they filmed that here in Phoenix because... Um, present-day Phoenix, or at least 2007 Phoenix, looked a lot more like 80s L.A. than yes. L.A. does today. And I think it's probably the same thing as, you know, they probably found spots in Georgia that look a lot more like That's, 70s L.A. Yes. But, I mean, I loved the look. And even the 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 great shots that you had of the, the establishing shots of the valley or the different parts of L.A., they did such a great job of recreating what L.A. looked like, especially with the just in, insane levels of smog everywhere. Oh, yes. It's, I mean, they definitely create that feel for 70s L.A. I, I've never I – was, I wasn't in L.A. in the 70s, but I feel like that's – it felt – accurate <laughs> right <laughs> to what i recall hearing you know the smog and all of that just the gritty city really came through so sort of you know this was its opening weekend so this is sort of a unique situation on, on trailer rewind usually we're going back talking about films that have hit their theatrical release and we're looking at them on netflix and hulu uh, and encouraging people to go find them there uh, but i think this is a case where at least for me i'm gonna i want to encourage people to get out there and see this it it had a a decent opening weekend, I think about eleven, you know, eleven and a half million dollars, uh, going up against strong competition like Angry Birds and and Neighbors Two. Uh, but this is something for me that I would really encourage people to go out there to see, to have that experience in the theater because the comic moments for me, it I love being able to be in a crowd and laugh. It's a different experience than laughing on your couch at home. And there was definitely sort of a, I think a sense of community of being able to laugh at some, some pretty dark things in this film that, that felt nice. Yeah, I a hundred percent agree. I definitely think people should go see this. Um, it was interesting, uh, you know, getting a sense of who was really clicking with the film in the audience and who wasn't, you could hear, you know, d- certain different people <laughs> laughing and certain people, I think, it's just not their style. Yeah. But uh, I think for the most part, I mean, I, it was a pretty packed theater for me, though. So I was glad to see that it was still um, it was still drawing, uh, drawing the crowds. So I definitely recommend people check this one out. It was uh, certainly a strong one in my book. Well, we, we don't have a official – we don't do flick charting the same way on, on Next Reel. So we don't have a big board to rank it against. But what JJ and I usually do is talk about where it's fallen on our own personal flick charts. Sure. So, so for for me, uh, this one, as uh, listeners may know, I, I nuked my my chart about a year and a half ago and have been adding them in. So I I don't have as extensive a list as uh, as ever as the rest of uh, I think the TNR guys do. But this one came in for me at number thirty, which put it right below Amadeus and right above Big Night, which was one that I had done for a three of a kind. So it's uh, thirty, I think, out of uh, hundred and. Let me see, 180 or so? 
So, but so it's in it's in my top, you know, top thirty there. Well, mine ended up at six fifty on my flick chart, which uh, seems certainly higher than yours. But that's six fifty out of three thousand five hundred ninety four. <laughs> So it's it's at an eighty two percent on my chart. So six fifty. Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't sound so strong. Okay. It doesn't sound strong, but it's eighty two percent. This is one that I think definitely warrants um, some rewatches, and I think over time I feel like this is one that I am going to click with more as it uh, as as i view it cuz i think there's just so much going on in this film that's worth checking out. Yeah, i think this is one of those nice uh sort of detective mystery stories that is going to really hold up to repeated viewing because it's not so much about the reveal or solving the mystery, it's really more about the journey you go on with these two guys. Uh some some great character development and just interactions and just the the comic moments balanced with the characters and action just really for me make this an enjoyable film that I'm looking forward to watching over and over again. Uh I'm going to be watching Kiss Kiss Bang Bang a little later this week, so I'll be looking forward to seeing how, for me, it holds up against that one since it's been quite a while. Uh, so where does this one fall in uh, ranking with all your other Shane Black films that you've watched? Thinking about it, I would say that this... I, I didn't check on my on my flick chart, but I feel like Kiss Kiss Bang Bang is higher, and I, I kind of feel like long uh, the Long Kiss Goodnight may still be higher because I, that one I just think is just such a ridiculously fun time. This one I would say is probably third, but this one could actually bump up to second because I think that there's just um, just some just crazy delightful characters uh, and just fun moments throughout this one. So I don't know. I'm, I'm a little torn, but you know, it's, I think it's second or third. Okay. Well, you know, it's been a pleasure having you here on a special edition of Trailer Rewind. I'm uh, so thrilled I got to join. You know, it's it's nice to see something current, and uh, as this is just hitting, you know, theaters this weekend, I encourage anybody out there listening to definitely check that out and give us some feedback. Give us uh, your opinions on where this falls uh, in relation to the Shane Black series, if you've been keeping up with Pete and Andy on that, or where it's falling on your own personal flick chart. Uh, give us some feedback. Let us know how you feel about this film. So, Andy, it's been a pleasure. It's uh, getting late, time to get to bed, so have a good night. All right. Same to you. i got to go bury this, uh, this dead hooker that just crashed through my house. I love the conversations that so many of our hosts have had on their shows. Steve and JJ on Trailer Rewind, Ray and Ocean on Silver Linings, even Tommy's short-lived No, No, Wait, Hear Me Out. And so many films they've discussed started out as a book, a play, or even a TV series. Well, now you can support our whole family of podcasts by using our new Originals page to buy the original source material used to inspire films covered on our shows. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these fantastic conversations. It's a wonderful way to support the show. Producing these podcasts week after week require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, try using our originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. It's your one-stop shop for Amazon and Apple links where you can buy the book, play, video game, movie, etc. upon which the movie is based. Original material for trailer rewind movies like If Beale Street Could Talk, The Goldfinch, Aniara, 
or the two faces of January. Or Silver Linings movies like Repo Men, which was based on the repossession Mambo. Plus, by using those links to buy books, Amazon and Apple show us a little bit of love, which allows you to support our family of shows with minimal effort. Visit thenextreel.com slash originals. It's a fantastic way to support the show and find a great book to read. That's right. Head over to thenextreel.com slash originals to find your next read and get started today. Today. 